Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the Pentagon's supply chain challenges may require new thinking to solve. We talk about the traditional five domains of warfare, the land, the sea, the air, cyber, and space. There's a sixth. It's logistics. And turbocharging NASA's cloud journey. We're looking at the cloud to, to make applications available across the enterprise using cloud services that will, will absolutely span across our, our geographic barriers that we have right now internally and make it accessible across the enterprise all at once. It's Wednesday, February 9th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. New legislation in the Senate would combine elements of network security, cyber, and cloud bills already under consideration. The new bill from Senators Gary Peters and Rob Portman would require critical infrastructure organizations and civilian federal agencies to report to the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency if they experience a substantial cyber attack. The new bill would also formally authorize FedRAMP. The General Services Administration will pass on facial recognition technology for login.gov for now. The head of the Technology Transformation Service, Dave Zvenich, tells FedScoop GSA will wait until, quote, rigorous review has given us confidence that we can do so equitably and without causing harm to vulnerable populations. The Internal Revenue Service said Monday it'll move away from using the technology to identify users. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The Defense Department's in the middle of a two-year effort to examine and shore up its supply chain. The Supply Chain Resiliency Working Group will publish its first findings this summer. Admiral Jamie Fogo, U.S. Navy retired dean of the new Center for Maritime Strategy at the Navy League. He's former commander of U.S. Naval Forces Europe-Africa and former commander of Allied Joint Forces Naples. He's writing about the supply chain. Jamie, welcome. It's great to see you again. What's the biggest problem that you see right now in especially the military, but the country in general, getting what it needs, where it needs it vis-a-vis the supply chain? Welcome, sir. Francis, thanks very much uh, for the opportunity to be on your podcast. Uh, And once again, uh, you're right at the pinnacle of, uh, you know, strategic issues for this country. What we saw before the uh, Christmas holidays in the port of Los Angeles was just the tip of the iceberg of where we are with the challenges for the supply chain. And uh, I want to take you back to my experience uh, when I was on active duty in Europe. As you know, I uh, retired a little over a year ago, and I've been doing a number of things uh, out in uh, transition to the civilian sector. But uh, while I ran the uh, exercise uh, Trident Juncture, Uh, It was probably one of the most exhilarating things I've ever done. We had 50,000 soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, 70 large ships, including the Harry S. Truman Strike Group, and she's in the Eastern Med right now, pushing back against Russian aggression. The Iwo Jima Expeditionary Strike Group, full of Marines, 8,500 Marines from Camp Lejeune, and uh, 10,000 tracked and rolling vehicles, 265 aircraft of all type model series, all 30 NATO allies. So when we went you know, go and hit the, uh, uh, pull the starting pistol. It was 30 days to move about seven equivalent brigades to the country of Norway to defend against what would have been in the exercise, a Russian invasion of their sovereignty from the north, from the north. You think about that in terms of Ukraine, that's a lot of stuff to get there. Row rows going in and out. And what I found was, you know, when we're dealing with the Alliance, the Alliance does things differently than 
the United States of America joined force. We have a TIPFIT, a time-phased force deployment doctrine, pretty well organized of when the troops and the cavalry comes over the horizon and when sustainment, the beans and the bullets come in to support those troops on station. NATO has this program called LogFast. And if you're unfamiliar with it, like some of our uh, American uh, uh, counterparts, uh, the Marines coming from the United States, it takes a little getting used to. And uh, it's all about uh, accuracy or garbage in and accuracy or garbage out. So if you don't uh, use the tool correctly, then ships arrive early, ships arrive late. And the problem, just like LA, is stuff gets stacked up on the pier or you're wasting you know, time and resources paying stevedores uh, to unload a ship that doesn't arrive. So this can be a challenge. I had a remarkable uh, uh, J-4, the guy responsible for logistics. He was Brigadier General Darko Pintarich. You want a guy in your J-4 named Darko because he has to be tough, and he was. <laughs> and he made this thing happen in 30 days. But after all that was done, Francis, I came to the conclusion that, you know, we talk about the traditional five domains of warfare – the land, the sea, the air, cyber, and space, there's a sixth. It's logistics. People have argued with me on that, but it is true. Because just like cyber, logistics enables all the other domains to do their job and fight the war, or better yet, deter the war from happening. So uh, NATO calls it military mobility. Same thing, logistics. Uh, when you translate that into the civilian sector, uh, logistics, mobility, supply chain, sustainment, international commerce, we've got some challenges on the horizon and there's some red flags out there that need to be addressed. And that's why I wrote that piece that you asked me about for the Hill on how to lose the next war, ignore the supply chain. Last thing I'll say is when I went around and talked to my logisticians in Norway, I used to tell them the story about Alexander the Great, a little bit tongue in cheek, but Alexander the Great won a lot of battles. And he said, during my campaigns, should I ever lose a battle, my logisticians know that they will be the first ones that I slay. <laughs> There's a lot of pressure on these guys, and they will deliver when they're given the proper tools, resources, and leadership. You Back wrote, over to you. You wrote in that piece, Jamie, uh, today it's worth noting the Chinese Shipping Corporation has a fleet of 1,371 vessels, while the U.S. flag fleets fall into 180 vessels. What's the significance of that in the landscape that you just painted? Yeah, that is just egregious. You know, uh, I'm here at the Center for Maritime Strategy, a new think tank startup in Washington, D.C. And when you think about the United States of America and our history, all the way back to Alfred Thermahan, the greatest maritime strategist of all times, so we are a maritime nation because we are an island nation. And 71% of the Earth's surface is covered by water. And 90% of our global trade and commerce goes over that water, over the oceans of uh, the world. And so to look at the stark contrast between 1,371 Chinese ships and 184 U.S. flag merchant ships is stunning. And so we got to do something about it. And that means we have to put resources into our industrial base and make you know, commercial shipping in the United States a priority. Now, some would say, well, we can outsource that and we can do it cheaper someplace else. Where this comes into play, Francis, is not day-to-day -day shipping goods back and forth to Europe or the Middle East or you know, back and forth to China. Where it comes into play is when the United States gets involved in a crisis or a war. 
we've got to be able to deliver the beans and bullets to the troops in order to provide sustainment for their operations far away from American shores. How are you going to do that? Are you going to use Chinese vessels to carry war material to try to blunt the Chinese from invading Taiwan? I don't think so. We're going to have to use U.S. flag vessels. If you go back to the Gulf War, remember what happened. Turkey got cold feet and it wouldn't give us overflight rights or uh, overland rights to get our material into Iraq. And we had to go do other things like hire Russian heavy lift aircraft to bring our tanks and uh, material into the war zone. That's unacceptable. And we should look at this now and we should try to fix it now. You and your uh, colleagues at the Center for Maritime Strategy are aiming for what as you've built this think tank that you've described a couple of times. I saw your name next to Mike Stevens's name, and I thought that's a power duo there. Uh, what do you want to deliver as time goes on, Jamie? Well, it's it's not just a power duo. I mean, I love Mike Stevens. I knew him when I was an active duty, MCPond 13. But, you know, down at this end of the hall, we got the MCPond at the other end. We got, uh, you know, a couple four stars at this end. Admiral John Richardson is one of the national vice presidents of the Navy League. His office is about 10 feet away. So you talk about an incredible resource for me, uh, a director of naval reactors for four years, then to become the chief of naval operations. And John and I are both submariners. We've known each other for a long time. We have the best interests of the Navy at heart. But Francis, this center is more than just about the Navy. It's about the maritime. It's about sea power. It's about naval power, maritime power. And, and uh, naval power becomes maritime power when you add in the commercial sector and commercial interests. And it's all the same thing. It all supports you know, keeping this country at the forefront and uh, global trade and also in our ability to uh, avoid crisis, deter major power war. That's what we're trying to do in the Ukraine right now. But we support uh, advocacy for the Navy, the Marine Corps, the Coast Guard, the Merchant Marine, Military Seal of Command. And you can't discount the importance of the industrial base and our shipbuilders and folks like Rosie the Riveter that won World War II putting together Liberty ships and aircraft to go overseas and combat the enemy. And so that's what we're about here at the center. And I couldn't think of a better place to land in retirement than doing something I love studying and advocating for maritime strategy and advocating for maritime power. I teased you the last time we got together off the air that I don't think retirement is the right word for it for you, Jamie. I don't think you take anything in a retiring way, but it's great to talk to you again, my friend. Francis, thanks so much. Great to be on your show. Invite me back, and uh, we look forward to having you over to the center to give you a tour around. You can read more about the Pentagon's supply chain in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast. Coming on Thursday's show, your office might look a lot different when you finally go back to it. The former head of the Public Building Service at the General Services Administration, Dan Matthews, will tell you what to expect on tomorrow's Daily Scoop Podcast. That show debuts Thursday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. Chief data officers across government have marks to hit in the Federal Data Strategy Year 2 Action Plan. A lot of those marks depend on infrastructure, especially cloud infrastructure. Ron Thompson is the Chief Data Officer at NASA. He tells my colleague Wyatt Cash, NASA's cloud journey is more than a decade old already. The largest area where we're seeing our cloud modernization really help us is in our earth science data. That's our publicly accessible data. And it's really an open data enclave where we, we keep uh, historical information about how we study the earth for climate change, 
how we deliver efficiencies uh, for our observations. And if you look at our data sets, we have well over 28,000 data sets that are uniquely uh, uh, formed and uniquely available for the public. So these open data stores absolutely rely on uh, the cloud to keep that cost down for us and to make it accessible for uh, everyone throughout the world. What were the primary technology challenges that NASA faced in delivering services to the public? And how did the cloud uh, help NASA overcome some of them? So NASA, like uh, a lot of agencies, have a vast amount of information internally. So the challenge was, how do you get that available outside to our, in, in, in this example, outside to our open data users uh, without uh, really having access to our internal, internal information, internal, internal uh, systems? So we would have to move that. We would have to get a copy, move that, and put it into a demilitarized zone uh, mm -hmm. that's accessible to the public. So the cloud enabled us to actually store a lot of this art all of this archive information out in one place, uh, both internal and external to NASA users. And it really helped us uh, really focus uh, those containers in one place versus having two. Uh, another challenge that we had was uh, very early on was the cost of moving data back and forth, right? So looking at uh, uh, new architectures, new way that service providers uh, actually have services available to us, um, we're, we're able to drive that cost of, 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 of the back end of those systems, those data stores, uh, um, and how that was being, uh, uh, those data were being accessible to the public. So it really drove that cost down. Appreciate your sharing that. Uh, next, can you describe maybe a couple of key outcomes that the cloud has allowed NASA to achieve compared to, you know, where you were maybe just a couple of years ago? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's predictable uh, cost, right? Uh, cloud cost is a usage-based consumption model, so it allowed us to to project our our cost for our our, our services. Uh, you know, no longer were we uh, uh, surprised by a tech refresh where we weren't really weren't planning for it. So that predictable cost was number one. I think the technology advancements we're seeing from our providers. Uh, and the, the security posture from our providers are, are increasing. So, so those three attributes really enable us to, uh, to be more efficient and effective on how we were providing services uh, to, to our external, external uh, constituents. Mm -hmm. Well, and then finally, Ron, what were one or two key lessons or maybe even surprises that you experienced moving to the cloud? And where do you plan to adopt additional cloud services next, perhaps as a result? So I think the surprise very early on, and this this isn't just, um, I think, a NASA example. This is where I've worked in other organizations, too, was, was the cost, right? Uh, the cost of moving data in and out of an organization. I think that, quite frankly... Uh, really caught uh, a lot of agencies caught caught me personally off off guard where we really didn't plan for that. Um, and I think where we see this in the future, wide is it's it's going to be beyond just storage and compute. Uh, we're looking at a utility uh, at the application layer. Uh, take our engineering side of NASA. We, we're looking at the cloud to to make applications available across the enterprise using cloud services that will will absolutely span across our, our geographic uh, barriers that we have right now internally and make it accessible across the enterprise all at once. So it's really taking the value beyond compute 
uh, and storage and putting it into the application layer. And that's really where we're advancing to right now through our digital transformation efforts. Ron Thompson, the chief data officer at NASA with my colleague Wyatt Cash. You can find a link to watch the video of that conversation in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Federal Workplace of the Future with former Public Building Service head Dan Matthews on tomorrow's Daily Scoop podcast. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.